Welcome back to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast and today we're not so much looking at a chapter of O's manual but at the physiological concept of respiratory compliance and I approach this with a degree of trepidation as the probability of screwing this up is infinitely higher than simply translating O's manual into podcast form. So compliance is relatively simply defined as a change in volume per change in pressure or put another way for every one centimeter of water pressure I apply with the ventilator I get 100 mils of volume. The compliance in this scenario would be 100, i.e. 100 divided by 1, which equals 100. This is 100 mils per centimetres of water, also happens to be the normal compliance of the human lung. You'll sometimes see compliance written as delta volume divided by delta pressure, but really it's all the same thing. There are a few different types of compliance described through the respiratory system. Um, number one, static compliance. So this is the compliance of the respiratory system in the absence of flow. And this consists of the compliance of the lung tissue and the chest wall and is the number that we're looking at generally. Secondly, you can look at dynamic compliance, and this look at, uh, looks at compliance of the respiratory system in the presence of flow. So this will consist of chest wall and lung tissue compliance and airway resistance, and it will always be lower than static compliance. You will also see this in your ventilators. Thirdly, specific compliance. So this is the compliance that is normalized for lung volume. It's kind of like an index value, um, like a cardiac index, so adults and kids can be compared. So compliance will vary depending on distension of the lung with ideal compliance usually just above the FRC, the functional residual capacity. When over-distended and about to pop, you can imagine that increases in pressure will only produce small changes in volume. The same is true when the lung is at very low lactatic volumes where the lung tissue is squished solid and large changes in pressure are needed to produce a change in volume. This is nicely represented in the graph from the range physiology in the show notes that shows a nice sigmoid curve of lung volume plotted against airway pressure. The steep part of the curve represents the ideal compliance as you get the most bang for your buck, so to speak, in that small increases in pressure will result in substantial increases in volume. We are very interested in lung compliance in the intensive care unit. We talk a lot about stiff lungs and we spend a lot of our time and energies trying to optimise ventilation of those with poor compliance. So how do we measure or assess compliance? This kind of becomes sort of a reflex over time when you simply kind of walk in the room and you look at the vent and the, the driving pressure and the tidal volume produced and a synapse somewhere ignites and tell you, tells you that 25 centimetres of um, pressure to produce 250 mils of tidal volume is not a good thing. If you do the basic calculation of delta volume divided by delta pressure, in this case it would be 250 divided by 25, you get 10, which is indeed a very low compliance and of great concern. This is most of what you need to know for day-to-day -day practice. However, for examinations um, or brownie points, you might wish to know more and understand many of the circumstances where that kind of simple heuristic might be wrong. The gold standard is something called the super syringe method, which involves inflating the lung in 100 mil increments with a 2 to 3 second pause at each inflation. And this measures static compliance, and I mention it mainly because it rejoices in the very cool name of the super syringe method. In real life, we measure compliance by fiddling with the inspiratory and expiratory hole buttons and looking at what number the ventilator spits out. This is technically the compliance of the respiratory system rather than the true static compliance, but I remain somewhat in the dark as to the subtleties of the difference. What you do with the number, the compliance numbers you get, is a whole different question. We do know that stiff lungs do worse. That's hardly a surprise. Given that compliance is typically best just above the FRC, we can titrate PEEP to idealised compliance. This is best explained on a Critical Care Now post by Matt Shuba, and it's linked to in the show notes. The basics of this involve a passive patient, so someone who may be deeply sedated or paralysed. They're in a volume controlled mode, and the PEEP is dialed up and down with a fixed volume to see 
at which peep you get the best driving pressure, i.e. the lowest amount of pressure to produce the set volume. This should place you on the steep part of that sigmoid curve we talked about above and just above the functional residual capacity. There are an actual fact, there's a number of methods of trying to attain the same thing and I don't mean to imply that this has proven to be the best method by any means and I have put a few links in the show notes for those looking to read a bit more. I'll hopefully do a whole post on setting peep and recruitment at some point in the future. Um, main references for this post are Deranged Physiology post and this is excellent. The Critical Care Now post by Matt Shuba is also referenced in there and there's a study to support that the Sahitya, apologies for butchering the name, peep titration to minimise driving pressure in subjects with ARDS, a prospective physiological study in respiratory care in 2020. Okay, thanks for listening and I'll speak to you next time.